The presenting sponsor of Super Stories is Gia, a company bringing you the best ready-to-drink spritzes and aperitifs in the market. And you're going to want to pay attention today because they just launched their newest product, their classic lace spritz with a lime and sea salt twist. Get that salty, citrusy fix you missed from your old cocktails and none of the nastiest side effects of alcohol. Here's the lowdown. Gia is crafted with only pure ingredients, a biting combination of botanical extracts that are powerful enough to bring out the best version of you without numbing the night or the next morning. Gia was designed for flavor, not function, with a focus on using ingredients in their simplest form. There's some plant power, like lemon balm for stress relief, rosemary for immunity, but nothing that will keep you up or make you snooze. Set yourself up for success this summer by stocking up on these complex, satisfying sips, perfect for having on hand when you are celebrating sober. Save 20% off your first purchase at drinkgia.com. That's G-H-I-A with code STORIES. Welcome to Sober Stories, a podcast dedicated to the power and change that can come from really, really great storytelling. We believe that stories are a massively transformational medium. When we can see ourselves in someone's story, when we share our own story, that's when the magic happens. Here, we tell stories of folks all across the sober spectrum with hope, honesty, inspiration, and probably a few sparkling water jokes. I'm your host, Beth Bowen, and it's a huge honor to be chief story steward around here. With our guests, we pull back the curtain on the good, the bad, and sometimes the downright ugly of what it looks like to ditch the booze, changing the world one podcast episode at a time. Y'all ready? Hey, Sober Stories group. Welcome back. How's your Friday going? How's your heart doing? I hope you're hanging in there and I'm glad you're joining us today. And let me tell you, I have one hell of a motivating episode for you. I left this conversation ready to get back to work and change the world, all thanks to the kick in the pants that Bean gives us in this interview. Bean Gill is a Canadian-born South Asian woman who describes herself as an accidental advocate after a virus paralyzed her from the waist down 10 years ago. Now Bean runs the nonprofit she co-founded, ReU Paralysis Recovery Center, and uses her voice to raise awareness for disability rights, inclusion, and diversity. Bean is the reigning Miss Wheelchair Canada, won Global's Woman of Vision Award, and was recognized by Mattel as one of Canada's top 60 inspiring women as part of Barbie's 60th anniversary. She also won Top 40 Under 40 in 2019 and RBC's Woman of Influence Award in the Ones to Watch category, a few steps towards her plan to change the world. Bean and I went deep into the agency and ownership each of us has in our own lives, regardless of our circumstances. She is one powerhouse of a woman, and I think you will agree. After you give today's episode a listen, tag Bean and let us know what your biggest takeaway was. Here we go. Hey crew, I want to drop a quick content warning for you. In this episode, Bean shares her experiences with domestic violence and suicidal ideation. As always, if those are tender subjects for you, we are happy to catch you on the next episode. All right, Sober Stories. I am so excited to welcome Bean Gill to the podcast. Welcome, Bean. Hi, Beth. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here too. Yeah. How's your day been going today? Uh, it's been a little bit stressful, but not the same as every other day. So yeah. it's been good. Yeah. Good, good. Well, I am really excited to talk about your story in general. I think you have a really compelling story and the way you speak is really compelling. And I know that alcohol is a part of that in some way. So I would love to just start with the high notes for, for the people we've, we've given them a bio, we've given them kind of, you know, your credentials, but for those who are new to you, new to your story, give us the high notes of who you are, where you are, what you do, who you do life with, and then we'll dig into the story story in a minute. Sure. Um, yeah. So my name is Bean Gill. Um, I am from Edmonton, Alberta, born and raised here. And, um, I'm 40 years old. I am paralyzed and I run a business called Reu Paralysis Recovery Center with my business partner, Nancy. Um, I have an amazing family. I have three siblings, four nieces, four, three nephews, one niece. Mm. <laughs> um, I live with my mom and my brother and his family. And we have a little puppy named Archie. <laughs> and so far, like life has been very interesting, as you'll see. Mm. But yeah, it's been quite the whirlwind living my life. Well, let's dive in. Give us your story because I know you kind of have two stories that are relevant here. You have the story of how you became paralyzed and then also alcohol and whether or not those intermix or not, we'll, we'll find out. But give us the give us the rundown of your story. Sure. So yeah, alcohol definitely played a part in me getting paralyzed. Um, 
So I guess like, you know, I'll give you a brief cliff's notes of my life. You know, I, like I said, I was born and raised here. I became an x-ray tech after going to Nate and, um, you know, I was working full-time job and then I got a position in the cardiac cath lab. And uh, that's where people go. Once you have a heart attack, mm-hmm. you go there and underneath x-rays, they go in and open up your arteries that feed your heart muscle. It's a very stressful job. I've seen a lot of people pass away right in front of me. Mm-hmm. I've done CPR on many, many people. Um, it's, it was very stressful. Mm-hmm. And that is where my drinking started. Um, actually that's not where it started. That's where it expedited. I was also, I got married when I was 25 while I was working in the cath lab. And because I didn't know how to communicate my feelings, I didn't know how to feel my emotions. I didn't know that it was okay to even feel emotions, Mm. let alone label them and work through them. Um, I just didn't know. I was always the type of kid that would sweep everything under the rug. I would bottle everything up and then explode. Like I said, I didn't have healthy ways of communication that wasn't modeled in my house with my parents. Uh, I just didn't see any of that. So I didn't know how to do it. And I was always also a very like secretive kid. Like I Mm. didn't tell anybody a lot of things I was doing, which also played a part in me getting paralyzed. And so working in the cath lab, um, everybody there drinks a lot Mm. and it's celebrated and it's normalized and it's okay to, you know, drink a few bottles and we would laugh about it and we would, you know, like I said, celebrate it that, oh, how many bottles did you drink? Mm -hmm. Well, this is how many I drank. Mm. And, um, you know, we would drink together and it was a great way to cope with the stress and stuff of the job and then life on top of that. I was married and my marriage was really unhappy for the first year was fine. And then after that, it kind of all went to hell. And because I didn't know how to communicate my feelings, I wasn't able to speak my truth. I numbed myself Mm. and I would drink. And then when I was drunk, my truth would come Mm -hmm. out, but I wouldn't remember it. And then the next day when my ex would tell me what I said, I was like, no, no, no. Like, that's Mm. not, that's not how I feel. I'm totally happy. I'm totally good. Right. Because I just, I didn't know. I didn't have the courage or bravery to speak my truth. Mm. And when I did speak my truth, I denied it because I didn't want to really even be in that reality. And because it's hard, right? right? It's hard to speak your truth. It's hard to end a relationship. It's hard to do all these things. Whereas pouring a glass of wine Mm. was the easy out, right? Being that fun loving outgoing person after having a few drinks was always the easy out. And so that's what I did because that's all I knew. And it was in 2011 is when I quit my job in, in the cath lab. And, um, I ended up getting a position in a clinic and, you know, becoming the supervisor of the x-ray clinic. And that's kind of when things really started to (laughs) peak at my, Mm. uh, with the drama, I guess, in my (laughs) life. So when I quit there, um, you know, a little bit of my stress went down, but also a lot of my stress went up because I was still married, very unhappy, uh, not sure how to express that. And Um, So 2012 was, and I hope remains, the worst year of my life. That's when things really hit hit the fan Mm. and um, put me on the path that I'm on now. So in January of 2012, that's when I turned 30 and, you know, had a great party. It was really fun and stuff. But I remember telling my friend a few days after that, like, I'm going to leave him. I don't know how much longer they expect me to put up with his shit. Mm. And they family. Mm-hmm. Right. And I didn't know how I was going to leave. I didn't know that, but I knew I was going to that year. And so fast forward a couple of months to April, it was Easter long weekend and we had gone out and all of my friends and my cousins were there and his cousins were there and, you know, we're all drinking and having a good time. And the restaurant actually cut us off because we had so much mm-hmm. um, alcohol. Um, so we went to another bar, <laughs> right? <laughs> As one does. Yeah. All like, can't get in yep. here. Let me go somewhere yep. else. So we went somewhere else, had more drinks and stuff there. Um, and 
uh, I guess, you know, my ex got jealous of um, one of my friends. We were dancing, but it was very platonic. We were dancing in a group of circle, a group of people. And you know what I mean? And so when we got back to the car, uh, we got into a big fight and he ended up backhanding me Mm. and what hit me. And I have a zero tolerance policy for Mm. especially physical abuse. And now it's all type of abuse. I have a zero tolerance Mm. policy for, but back then it was just physical. And I mean, I was drunk. He was drunk. He was driving our expensive car and he was threatening to kill me. He was threatening to kill both of us. Mm. He was threatening to crash the car and kill us both. Um, We fought all the way home. And I mean, he should not have been driving, mm. but he was. And when we got home, that fight continued. Um, it got a lot more violent. Um, and I ended up with two black eyes, mm. a red eyeball, cut my eyebrow open, had bruises all over my arms and the sides of my body. Mm. And like, it was bad. It could have been a lot worse, but it was bad. Mm. And um so I called my sister who then woke up my dad and my brother and they called the police as they were on their way to come pick me up. So the police has a zero tolerance policy. So right. they pressed charges for assault and asked me if I wanted to press additional charges. I said no, because I knew he would just ruin his life on his own and I didn't want any part of that. Mm. And so, you know, that, that happened in April. Like I said, I didn't know how to process any feelings or emotions. I numbed myself. Mm -hmm. All of my friends said I need to go see a therapist and go, you know, go see some, go talk to somebody, tell somebody what's happening. And my justification was, I can't afford it. Mm. I can't afford, I can't afford $140 an hour, but Hey, I can spend, I can spend $300 on four or five bottles. No problem. Right. Right? It's priorities. Mm -hmm. And obviously hindsight is 2020. Mm. And so I can see the mistakes that I made and the choices that I made that led me to the path that I'm on. So from April to June, um, yeah, I partied hard. I numbed myself very well um, with anything that I could find, shopping, drinking, anything. Mm -hmm. And and at the end of June of 2012, that's when my dad left our family. And I mean, that was decades in the making, Mm. but when it actually happened, Still really hard to digest and process. And I was quite close with my dad. So that made it hard. And then two weeks later, I was in Vegas for my friend Stagette. And so I was really excited to be in Vegas, newly single, but I really didn't want to be a part of this wedding. I didn't want to go to the wedding. And that's because I was a bridesmaid and my ex was a groomsman uh, in this wedding. Mm. So I didn't want to go to the wedding. I didn't want to be a part of it. I didn't want to go there just because I knew he would make a scene. And I hadn't seen him since the day I left. And so while I was in Vegas, it was Friday the 13th. <laughs> and you know, <laughs> can't make that up. <laughs> I woke up and um, we were going to go to the pool that day. So I woke up, went to the bathroom, brushed my teeth, washed my face, walked over to the window in the hotel room, opened the curtains and saw that it was raining outside. And then I remember thinking, like, that's weird. When does it rain Hmm. in Vegas in July? Like, plus 44 the day before. And so, you know, whatever. I walked back to the bed and those four steps I took were the last four steps I took on my own. Hmm. And I can still feel the carpet on the bottom of my feet. I can, I remember getting into the bed with my right leg first. And as I started to lay down, I experienced the most excruciating pain I've ever felt in my low back. I have a very high pain tolerance, uh, but this was really, really bad pain. Pain only lasted maybe a minute or two. Mm. And then I wasn't able to move my right leg. So as I lay there trying to move both of my legs, only my left leg is moving. I'm wiggling my toes, flexing my ankle, bending my knees, flexing my hip, whatever I could do. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to move both, but only the left leg was moving. And then my leg went prickly from my hip to my toes, kind of like a Mm. kind of motion. And I was left paralyzed from the waist down within 10 minutes. So as I lay there, unable to move anything, I could feel everything, Mm. couldn't move anything. My critical thinking skills jump into play. I took my pulse. I started looking at my vitals Mm. um, as an x-ray tech. Yeah, I was saying healthcare. 
right? You go to straight to trauma mode. And I'm thinking about my spinal cord and where my pain was. And it did nothing made sense. I didn't fall. I didn't do any drugs. I didn't, it was 1030 in the morning. Mm. Like, yes, I've been drinking the night before, but I even didn't get like super wasted the night before. So things just didn't make sense. I didn't know what was happening. And so I called 911, called my insurance company, uh, you know, went to the hospital, had an MRI right off the bat that came back clear as did all of mm. my tests. Every single test that I had in Vegas, I was in the hospital there for 12 days, oh came back God. clear or normal. And I actually got misdiagnosed in Vegas with conversion disorder. And that is where you're so stressed out mm -hmm. that your brain from the body to shut down, mm -hmm. given my year. And the 30 before that, where I was unable to express my emotions mm. and feelings and deal with the trauma, where I bottled all of it in, this is how it came out. Hmm. And when people say stress will kill you, <laughs> this is the stress that will kill you. For real, stress played a big part in the way I was paralyzed hmm. because now I, I got my official diagnosis three months later, which was transverse myelitis. Hmm. Um, and I actually do have a lesion in my spinal cord at T10, T11, which basically means inflammation of the spinal cord. And the reason it didn't show up on any of my other MRIs is because it's kind of like a scar mm. where it takes time for it to develop. The disease process happened on July 13th, mm. but it took a few months for that scar to develop in my spinal cord. So I, that's why it wasn't shown on any of the other MRIs uh, until it, uh, three months later when I had another one. Mm. And so, you know, TM, they say, is autoimmune, which is just a giant cop-out for right. the medical system to say <laughs> we don't know. There is no way that your immune system ever will start attacking your body on its own. Mm. There is no way. The human body is far too smart for that. If that was the case, humans wouldn't be around for mm. this long. What did happen is the Epstein-Barr virus, EBV. Mm -hmm. Lots of people have it. It's very, very common. Majority of people, though, it stays dormant in your organs mm -hmm. um, and just feeds off heavy metals and excess hormones in your body. Those of us who are the lucky ones to get to stage four, like myself, mm -hmm. it waits until your cortisol spikes. Cortisol ah. is your stress hormone. Mm -hmm. And when your cortisol spikes, that's when it says, okay, now is my chance to attack the central nervous system. Mm. So that's when Epstein-Barr will leave your organs and attack your central nervous system. Central nervous system is your brain and your spinal cord. Mm -hmm. So I'm very lucky that it didn't attack my brain. Mm -hmm. Very lucky that it attacked my spinal cord at T10, T11. So my arms and my upper body is still quote unquote normal. Mm -hmm. I do wish it attacked my fat cells, like something less vital than my spinal cord. Yeah, right. Can we get choosy here? Yeah. yeah come on. My spinal cord, like something so vital. Mm. <laughs> come on. But it put me on the path, right? And yeah. I remember my best friend, uh, she's a life coach. And she said to me while I was in the hospital in Vegas lying there, she said, Bean, this is God literally stopping you in your tracks and making you deal with your shit. Mm. And I said, yes, hmm. you are correct. <laughs> this is it, right? And I mean, the most beautiful silver lining out of all of this is that it forced me to get a psychologist. Hmm. When I came back to Edmonton, because of that misdiagnosis, mm -hmm. they told me I need a psychologist or a psychiatrist to find that mental block that I have in my head, unlock it, and you'll get your mobility back. Mm. So I was like, okay, cool. I'll do whatever it takes. So when I came back to Canada, I went through free route, first of all, right? Because we're like, oh, Canada, we have free healthcare. healthcare. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I'm in the this States. When we find out. <laughs> yeah, this is the truth about free healthcare. It is not free. You get what you pay for, which is absolutely diddly squat, mm. right? So I made an appointment with the free psychologist, but I didn't get that appointment for six weeks. And I'm like, I can't wait six weeks. So I kept that appointment, but I also uh, searched up for, you know, a psychologist in Edmonton and I found one, her and I clicked very well. And it turns out she's actually one of the top psychologists in Edmonton. Mm -hmm. I just didn't know at the time, which was awesome. So her and I started, I started seeing her about twice a week to start. And then it went to once a week. Um, then it went to once every two weeks and now it's kind of as needed, which is about two times a year. Mm -hmm. But definitely that was the biggest blessing out of all of this because she helped me deal with all of my trauma that I bottled up. She helped me deal with my paralysis. Um, she 
showed me how I can love myself being paralyzed, mm. being a wheelchair user. One of my first thoughts after being paralyzed was who the hell is going to date the girl in a wheelchair, mm. right? And I had that thought because I had the stigma towards people with disabilities. Right. I thought that people with disabilities don't date. Mm. They don't deserve intimacy. They don't need pleasure. They don't need any of that. And that's society's programming in me right? I've always been a very empathetic person and being an x-ray tech, like I've helped so many people and I was a healthcare aide before that. So I've worked with so many people with disabilities and it's not that I judged them or anything, right. but it's the subconscious bias mm. that we have. And I had that stigma towards people with disabilities. And then I became the person with the disability mm. and I had to unlearn all of that, right? And really realize that I am worthy of love. I am worthy of intimacy and pleasure and all of the things that neurotypical able-bodied people are also worthy of, mm. I am too. But it took me a year and a half to figure that out. Okay. It wasn't an easy switch, right? right? Like I had <laughs> Rarely to, is, right? Yeah, very rarely. And like, you know, your whole life gets flipped upside down. My whole identity got shifted. I'm no longer independent. I'm no longer an x-ray tech, mm. right? I'm no longer a makeup artist. I was a makeup artist as well. I'm no longer that. Like, what am I now? I'm the girl in a wheelchair. And that was a difficult identity for me to adopt. And I still really haven't fully adopted it. And mm. I don't think I ever will. Mm -hmm. But what happened is when I was paralyzed, it also sobered me up mm. because it scared the shit out of me. Yeah. How did this happen? right? Why did this happen? That was a huge question that I asked over and over and over again. And toxins is a big reason why these viruses thrive in our bodies. Mm. And alcohol is a huge toxin. Mm -hmm. So I stopped alcohol. I stopped meat. I stopped um, really anything that I could mm -hmm. that I knew was going to do damage to my body. Mm. It didn't last very long though. <laughs> it lasted maybe about seven months. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, well, maybe I can have a couple of glasses of wine, right? I think she'll be okay. And I mean, that's how it always starts, right? right? And I'm the type of person that go big or go home. <laughs> Why have a glass? Have a bottle. Yep. Yep. Right? What's the point of having one drink when I could be buzzed or tipsy or drunk? Yeah. Child's like, play. That was yeah, that was my mentality. And I didn't know that that's the mentality of alcoholics. Mm. And, uh, you know, that, that label too is also really hard to adopt mm -hmm. and to admit. And so I didn't admit it for a long, long time. And so when I was, you know, when I started drinking, I mean, you know, when you're in a wheelchair, a lot of my friends treated me like normal. So we still went to restaurants, still went to bars and stuff. And when you're the only person in a wheelchair in a bar, you get lots of free drinks, mm. like lots, <laughs> right? And so, I mean, that's a perk and I would always take advantage of it. And so I was throwing back shots, no problem. I was, you know, slamming those drinks, dancing and like doing whatever I wanted to do because that was my life. And I knew when my, my sister was there or my friends were there, someone was always there to take care of me. So I didn't have to take care of myself, mm. which allowed me to just drink uncontrollably. Mm -hmm. And one thing that a lot of people don't know about people with spinal cord injuries is that your spinal cord actually controls your bowel and your bladder. Mm. So when you have a spinal cord injury, you often will lose your bowel and bladder functions. Mm -hmm. And that's how that happened to me. It happens to many, many people. And when you're drinking alcohol, which is a huge bladder irritant, right. guess what happens? Yeah. You pee your pants. Right. A lot. Right? Yeah. So alcohol is an irritant. Anything carbonated air is an irritant. Mm. And champagne was my favorite. Mm. So, so you double can whammy. Sad, like, <laughs> yeah. So no more champagne, no more beer. So I kind of switched just to wine and vodka mm. was my kind of go-to or rum. So I was drinking a lot, right? And trying to live with this life and, you know, go on that journey and also then my recovery. So I was still doing a lot of physio. And um, in 2013 is when I was introduced to activity-based training. Mm -hmm. And I ended up traveling to a few different centers to find activity-based training. And when I ended up in California, the program was amazing. I just loved it so much. My recovery started skyrocketing. It was incredible. And 
So when I was down there, I Googled the U of A because I needed to find a kinesiology student to help me with my home program. Hmm. And I found some guy's email address, emailed him. I was like, I don't know if you're the person who can help me, (laughs) but this is who I am. I need a kinesiology student. What do I do? So he kind of asked me some more questions and then fanned it out to the whole faculty as a job posting. And that's, I got about 12 responses. And one of those responses was Nancy, Mm. who is now my business partner. Mm -hmm. And this is something she's always wanted to do. She just didn't know she could do it in Canada. Mm. So when she saw the opportunity, she was like, oh, like this is something I really want to do. And so her and I started working together and we are completely opposite people, (laughs) completely opposite. Black and white, yin yang, like day and night, 180 <laughs> degrees from each other, completely opposite. But I think that's why we work so well together. Mm. So we worked together as like trainer and client for a long time. And one of the things like I noticed in California is that there was people in wheelchairs all over the place, mm. everywhere. And I never saw anybody here in Edmonton, no one. You know, the occasional senior citizen or the homeless person here or mm-hmm. there. That was it. I didn't see anybody who looked like me, anybody, you know, there's a custom wheelchair, mm-hmm. never. And so, but in California, they were all over the place. So I was kind of like, what kind of bizarre land am I in? <laughs> Where are these people? <laughs> right? And so I'm like, okay, well, statistically, if there's able-bodied people, there are people with disabilities mm-hmm. all over our planet, right? So I made it my mission when I came back to Edmonton to find these people. Mm-hmm. Because I'm like, I want friends. I, like I had my friends, I had my family, but nobody understands. Right. And they won't understand because they're not in your position. Right. They for sure tried their best to support me. They did everything that they possibly could, but no one understands until somebody's in that position, hmm. right? So when I came back, that was my mission. I started going to all these places to find people with disabilities. And as I did, I just kind of like forced my friendship on everybody. Hi, <laughs> I'm <and>, Dean. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm a bit of an extrovert. I don't know if you can tell. (laughs) Uh, So then also what ended up happening is Nancy was going around to people's houses to train them as well. And so that's when we really started to see the need for a center here in Edmonton. I just wasn't in the right headspace and she was still in school. So it didn't happen for a few years. But through those few years, I was still drinking. And um, in 2015, we had 10 weddings that year. Hmm. It was the year of weddings. And Indian weddings are week-long affairs, all open bar, right? And very, very heavy food. And so that, I also had two white weddings, but those two weddings were in Mexico at all-inclusive resorts. So also, (laughs) yeah, seven days long, Mm. heavy, heavy drinking, lots of terrible food. And so by September of that year, I was like, okay, I got to take a break from drinking and eating the shitty food, Mm. right? So I- volitionally took a break from drinking and stuff for a few months. And then in 2016, I was like, okay, like I'm gonna, I want to see how lean I can get. Right. I'm like, I've always been working out. I worked out since I was 12 years old. And now I'm like, let me see, play with around with my food. I want to see how lean I can get. So I started tracking and I was very, very diligent, very consistent, and I lost almost 40 pounds mm. and have kept it off since then. <laughs> right? And um, it's mainly diet. Like 80% of your weight loss is the food you're shoveling into your mouth, Mm. right? And so when you really start tracking all the food and the fat and the carbs, uh, you really start to realize like, oh my God, do I need this donut? Do I need this chocolate (laughs) bar? Do I need this can of Coke, right? And I was very competitive with myself. So I I stopped all of that stuff. Um, So I did lose a lot of uh, the body fat that was on me but I kept drinking as if I was still carrying those 40 pounds. Mm. And that was really bad for my organs. Mm. And I was also in denial about being an alcoholic in 2015 when I, when I said we had all those weddings. Mm-hmm. At almost every single wedding reception, I would fall out of my chair mm. because I was so drunk. And, um, you know, it's embarrassing and whatever, but I didn't care because I was drunk. Right. And the next day after the receptions, I would get a talking to from my family. Mm. And they say, like, what are you doing? Like, why are you behaving like this? Look how old you are. Why do we have to babysit you? Why can't you just get a hold of your life? Why do you have to be like this? And I would just kind of like brush it off and be like, I'm paralyzed. Like, this happened to me. My life is really hard. Mm. Victim mentality. Mm -hmm. Right. 
and because I needed something to justify my behavior rather than taking radical ownership mm. of my life, which I have now done. <laughs> Right, which is why I speak about this. Yeah, I totally want, I want to ask other you people about that. To learn, right? Yeah, I want people to learn from my mistakes and like take ownership of your life. So then, in 2016, later on, I started drinking again because I was like, "Oh, like yeah, I can have a sip here and there, and I can have a glass here and there." Mm-hmm. And then we all know what that turns into, mm-hmm. right? So what ended up happening is it was Christmas time. It was December 3rd. I went to a Christmas party. Nancy and I both went. And, you know, obviously I was drinking there. Um, and, uh, oh, sorry, it was the next day actually. And I was actually at dinner with my lawyer and his new fiance, the irony of this. Okay. Is that dinner? And, you know, had a few glasses of wine with dinner, then went to a bar, had a f- couple more glasses of wine, went to another bar, had some shots. Right. And then I was like, yeah, I'm fine to drive home. Mm. I'm totally cool. Don't worry. I got this. I'm going to drive home. So I did. I didn't make it home. Um, I was driving downtown and I, I don't remember this. I have mm. no recollection of it. The impact of the accident woke me up. Mm. So I have a feeling that I fell asleep. Um, but I'm not 100% sure. I don't know what happened. So what ended up did happening is I hit an unoccupied parked car. Mm. Thank God. Thank God I didn't hit anybody. I didn't injure anybody other Mm. than myself because it could have been really, really bad and I could be in jail Mm. right now. So what ended up happening is the impact woke me up um, and then some guy comes to my car. He's like, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm okay. He's like, okay. He's like, ambulance is on its way. So are the cops. Mm. And I was like, oh shit, cops? He's like, yeah, yeah, I called 911. Mm. I was like, oh my God, right? And- I'm a brown girl living in Alberta. Yeah. I've dealt with many, many racist police officers mm-hmm. in my lifetime. And I I just know I've watched too many episodes of Law and Order. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know don't ever tell the cops nothing. So I called my lawyer, the friend who I was just with at dinner. I called him and I said, yo, this just happened. What do I do? Mm-hmm. He gave me the number of a criminal defense lawyer. And it was midnight at this time. So he's like, call him, call him till he wakes up. So I kept calling this guy and I said, yo, I got your number from this guy. I just crashed my car. I'm drunk. What do I do? And he said, do not refuse to blow. If anything, do not refuse to blow. Blow into it. We'll fight it later. And don't admit to anything and don't tell the cops anything. So like, sound advice. Okay, cool. (laughs) And then immediately after that, paramedics came, took me out of my car. And because I'm paralyzed, I couldn't tell if I was injured or not. Mm. Right. And so normal protocol is they would do the breathalyzer. I did the breathalyzer. I've never done this before. I didn't know you have to like kind of hum when you're breathing into it. (laughs) I didn't know. And I'm crying because now the reality of the situation is setting into my brain that, oh my God, I have to tell my family that I just crashed my car and I'm drunk. Mm. Right. So the breathalyzer thing's not working. The officer is like, you're doing this on purpose. I'm going to charge you with refusing to blow. And it was just a really high stress situation. So the protocol is they're supposed to take me to the main station to do blow into the big machine that never errors out. Mm. But because I was paralyzed, they had to take me to the hospital. Ah. And so he should have he should have ordered another breathalyzer to come there, but he didn't. And so at the hospital, they ended up drawing my blood mm-hmm. and did blood alcohol instead of breath alcohol. My blood alcohol level was almost three times the amount mm. that it should be. The doctor yelled at me, mm. gave me a big lecture. He's like, do you know how much you weigh? Mm. He's like, do you know that you have more alcohol in your system right now than blood? Hmm. And it was eye-opening, right? Because I'm like, it was then that I was like, holy fuck, I do have a problem. Hmm. I really do have a problem. And that was when I first admitted it to myself. And I was texting my my siblings and I said, you guys, this just happened. I don't want to tell my mom. I don't want to tell her. And they're like, you have to tell her. <laughs> and they were so disappointed in me. Mm. My whole family was so disappointed in me. They were so mad at me. And that's one of the main reasons why I'll never drink again Mm. is because I don't want to ever bring that kind of disappointment to my family, Mm. especially after all the things that they did for me when I needed them the most. And like, this is how I repay everybody. 
And this was three months before Ryu was to open. Mm. And my sister said to me, she's like, this is so much bigger than you. Mm-hmm. You got to open your eyes and look at your priorities here. This is bigger than you. Are you willing to risk your business mm. for drinking? And like, they really laid it down on me and it worked <laughs> because that was the last time I had any alcohol. If you've been around here for a minute, you know that therapy has been one of the most essential tools mentioned in the success stories of folks building a life without alcohol. In fact, as a therapist who's in therapy myself, I'm one of the biggest cheerleaders of connecting with a licensed professional and talking about the joys and struggles of changing our relationship with alcohol. That's why we're happy to partner with BetterHelp, a digital therapy platform that offers licensed therapists trained to listen and help you. BetterHelp has a network of over 20,000 therapists with a broad range of expertise, giving you online convenient access to support. It's easy. Fill out a questionnaire describing your specific needs and you'll be matched with a therapist in less than 48 hours. In addition to your secure video or phone therapy sessions, you can exchange unloaded messages with your therapist between the meetings. Join the 3 million plus people who have taken charge with their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash sober stories. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash sober stories. I uh, went to an AA meeting after that and that was really hard. Mm. First, even to call and be like, can I come? Mm. When are your meetings? Just even doing that was a really big, um, like I kind of punched the gut, right? Like, yo, you're an alcoholic. And so when I went to the meeting, I mean, some things I liked, some things I didn't like. One thing I didn't like was the God aspect, Mm -hmm. right? There was a lot of talk about God and all these things. And I have a very tumultuous relationship with God. And so I didn't like that. I did like the support and stuff that Mm -hmm. was provided there, but I didn't like having to talk constantly talk about God. I also didn't like that every time you speak, you have to say, hi, I'm Bean, I'm an alcoholic. And I only went to one meeting, Mm -hmm. but in that meeting, I said that about six times. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, I don't like that. I don't want the word alcoholic attached to my name. I don't want that to be my identity. I don't want that. And so, you know, I got my my token, my chip from them. And I thanked them at the end of the meeting for letting me come. And um, I got a couple of phone numbers of some women that were in the meeting as mm. well to, for support. Um, but I never went back to another AA meeting. And it's just not for me, right? It's for other people. It is a great program. Fully support it. It was just not for me. And so... Um, I did keep on my sober journey. Uh, the first few months were really hard because I wanted to drink. Mm. I knew I had to stop, but I didn't want to. So I kind of became a hermit. I didn't go to restaurants. I didn't go to my friend's house if I knew everybody was drinking. Mm. I just didn't go because I knew I would want to do it and I didn't have enough strength and willpower and I knew I would just start drinking. Um, and then the first like real test was we had a fundraiser for Ryu and it was a bar night mm-hmm. that I had planned. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Okay. Well, this is my fundraiser. So I have to go. There's no not going, but this was my first test. Can you go to a bar and not drink? And luckily, like Nancy was there and Nancy doesn't drink or anything. She's the straightest arrow you'll ever meet. <laughs> and my arrow doesn't even know it's an arrow. It's just bouncing <laughs> around all over the place. Right? It's a boomerang. <laughs> yeah. So she was there. My family was there. A lot of my friends were there. So I knew I had the support. And I made it. Mm. I survived that night. I didn't drink. I drank iced tea. I ate and food and stuff like that. But I didn't drink. So I was like, ooh, Okay. Step one, (laughs) I made it, right? And then it just got a little bit easier of making that choice not to drink. But the fact that everybody was like, oh, do you want to drink? No, that's okay. Well, why? Mm -hmm. Have one. Mm -hmm. Why? Are you pregnant? Mm -hmm. Have one. Have one. That pressure of like, why aren't you drinking? If you're not pregnant, then there's no other reason for you not to be drinking. Right? Right? And this is where society needs to change. Mm -hmm. 
So yeah, one of the things I found difficult was just society constantly forcing people to drink. Mm. And so I went to one of my friends' house houses and, you know, they were all drinking and stuff. And when I got there, one of their friends was like, oh, hi, I'm blah, blah, blah. I said, hi, I'm Bean. Nice to meet you. And she's like, oh, can I get you a drink? And I was like, no, that's okay. I don't drink. Oh, come on. Let me get you a drink. And I'm like, no, that's okay. Like, I don't drink. It's all good. Right. But like, come on, like you have to have a drink. Hmm. And she was being like really aggressive kind of with it. And I can tell she's had a few. Right. And so that's when I said, listen, I'm an alcoholic. I'm not drinking. Oh my God, you're an alcoholic. I work with addictions. (laughs) (sighs) Oh, Hmm. really? Yeah. So you didn't take it from the three times I told you that I don't drink. You didn't pick up those hints and this is what you do for a job. Right. Cool. Right. And so just like, man, oh, I don't ever want to be one of your clients. And I hope no one, I hope you don't have many clients because you didn't hear what I'm saying to you. So like, that's the pressure. And this is somebody who works with people with addictions. Mm -hmm. Right. And like, it's just, it's so prevalent. I mean, how many, you know, scrolling on Instagram, how many shirts do you say where the wine o'clock? Oh, yeah. Right. I'm a wino. Mm-hmm. Like it's celebrated. Mm-hmm. It's like it's, people are proud to be that. Mm-hmm. And then let's just replace that word wino with alcoholic. Yeah. Then no, no, no. That's not me. Right. I'm not an alcoholic. Right. No. I just have a couple of glasses of wine every day. Mm-hmm. Oh, do you want to look up the <laughs> definition? Right. Mm-hmm. I can say that to many of my friends. Yeah. Right. When you're binging, you're blacking out. Guess what that is? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Right. Mm -hmm. But so many of us just don't want to adopt that term or that label of alcoholic. And now when I tell people, people are shocked. Mm. You? Yeah. And I say it proudly because, yeah, I'm Indian first and foremost, which there's so much um, closet alcoholism in our culture in female and male Mm -hmm. populations. Right. Because in our culture, first of all, it's against our religion to drink, Mm. but everybody does it secretly. And then culturally, it's okay for men to drink, but it's not okay for females to drink. Mm -hmm. Right. But we all do. Mm -hmm. It's secretly. Now it's more in the open. It's more uh, accepted now. But there's so much of that that like that's why there's so much alcoholism is because it's all done secretly. Mm. Uh, and there's so much like, you know, male toxicity and patriarchy mm. and misogyny within my culture that creates these very unhealthy coping mechanisms. Mm. We've actually had um, two Southeast Asian women on the podcast already, uh, Jyoti Chand and Pyle Desai. And we've talked about a lot of the same threads in the Southeast Asian mm-hmm. culture of of not talking about mental health and a lot of kind of this more patriarchal society and what that yields. It's been really interesting to learn more about that. Yeah. I'm well, I'm glad you're talking about it with other people too, because it's important that we are open about these things Mm -hmm. so that the people who are suffering feel safe Mm -hmm. to express their concerns and their fears. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Because I'd never felt safe to do so. I always felt constantly judged Mm -hmm. or um, thought that people would think less of me. And now I just realized that I don't care what people think. It doesn't matter. (laughs) So I'm so interested in one of the things that you, or one of the ways you describe yourself is as an accidental advocate. And I know a lot of that has to do with the disability community. But I also Mm -hmm. hear this general openness and ability to talk about difficult concepts, difficult identities, difficult experiences in life that sound really different from the person you described when you were in your marriage and having a difficulty expressing your feelings. So what has that been like to uncover those feelings, uncover a voice behind those feelings, be able to advocate for yourself and others and make such a radical change from somebody who had a difficulty even vocalizing their own feelings within a relationship to now this really powerful work that you do both socially and in in the disability community? In one word, scary. Mm. (laughs) It's scary to Mm -hmm. make that transformation. It's scary to be vulnerable. It's hard. It's 
you know, that fear of judgment, fear of what are they going to think of me? And just fear of like, you know, being your true self, Mm -hmm. right? So many of us use a mask. So many of us are like, this is who I want the world to perceive Mm -hmm. me as, but no one will really know who I truly am, Mm -hmm. right? And I think we often think of like just sociopaths having (laughs) that kind of thought process, but it's not. It's so many more people, right? So many people don't even know who they are, right? And that was me. Mm-hmm. That was me 10 years ago, <laughs> right? That was me 15 years ago when I couldn't speak my emotions or anything. But, you know, having the therapist honestly was the biggest um, help for me mm. uh, was being able to love myself again, right? Having the disability and everything and all of these other labels and still being able to love myself and mm. be proud of myself. That's really hard to do. Um, and it takes a lot of daily effort. It yes. is not something that I go see my psychologist for two weeks and then, oh, look at me. I'm, I'm confident and I'm healthy and I'm, I'm healed. And I'm going to maintain <laughs> that. Right? No. It's everyday practice. I have a mental health routine every single day. Mm. And it's called a practice for a reason. Mm-hmm. I have to practice it. Right? And I'm just like everybody else. I have lots of stresses. I crumble under pressure. I mean, living with a disability is really hard. Mm. And suicide has come up many, 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 many times. I almost took action in 2019 with it Mm. because it was so hard to live my life. Mm. I didn't take action. I called my psychologist and I went to go see her instead. But I talk about it Mm -hmm. because people, see me and they think I have this perfect life and everything's always rainbows and sunshine and there's glitter falling all over my life, but that's not Hmm. true, right? That's why I have to openly talk about these things because I want people to know that if I can do it, you can do it too. Hmm. I'm just a regular person. I don't have superpowers. I don't have any kind of, you know, special gifts or anything. I'm just a regular human being who worked really, 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 really hard on my self-identity, my self-love, my mental health, and my physical health. Mm-hmm. But when people when I do tell people that, they're like, well, it's so hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is hard. <laughs> Everything's hard. So tell tell me about this idea of of agency and this radical ownership of your life that you talk about. Give us give us some some knowledge there. Sure. So it was uh well uh, quite a few years ago now. Eh, maybe around 2018ish, I'm not sure. Anyways, I had the revelation that I will never be able to not work out. Right? I have so much spasticity in my legs and in my core that mm. if I don't work out and if I don't move my body, I'm going to end up with contractures. Mm. And a contracture is where your joints stiffen in a certain position. And once you have a contracture, mm. good luck ever releasing it. Right. And being in a seated position for 90% of my day, it's a real reality that could happen. And having spasticity on top of that, where your muscles are constantly like contracting and relaxing, I mean, they're just constantly uh, reinforcing that pattern, Hmm. right? So it was then that I had that realization that I will have to work out until the day I die. Hmm. And that was really hard for me to really wrap my head around because like I said, I'm a normal human being. I don't want to work out every day. (laughs) I don't want to. (laughs) But I realized that I have no choice. Hmm. My goal is to be 109 years old. That's that's where I want to reach. Love that. (laughs) Right? And I'm only 40 right now. (laughs) So I'm only a third of the way there. Well, a little bit more than a third of the way there. So if I, and I'm already paralyzed, I have asthma, I have eczema, I have all these things that are going to work against me getting there, Hmm. but it's up to me to change that. And I realized that from a few different sources, my doctors, Mm -hmm. right? It's really easy to put the blame on somebody else. My doctor didn't do this. My physio didn't do this. My person didn't do this, right? But then it's just like, And I was saying those things too. I was majorly in the victim role, Mm -hmm. big time. And I think I was valid to be in that victim role based on my paralysis. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, is my my therapist had to tell me this straight to my face. She said, Bean, why are you putting your recovery in everybody else's hands? Mm -hmm. The only person who can heal you is you. 
And I processed that for honestly, it took me like a year and a half to really understand that. <laughs> You're like, that's pretty rude. Could you not? <laughs> and I paid her to tell me this mm-hmm. too. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. But when I really understood it and processed it, I was like, yeah, she was right. This mm-hmm. isn't up to anybody else. This is up to me. My doctors and stuff are there to support me, but it is not up to them. They truly don't really care that much. They mm-hmm. have hundreds of other people that they're trying to help as well. And it's their job, mm-hmm. right? And so when I really understood that my recovery is up to me, my mental health is up to me, mm-hmm. my physical health is up to me. That's when I was like, okay, so yeah, that's radical ownership, taking (laughs) your life into your own hands and realizing that your actions or inactions are your fault. Mm. Where you are in your life today is your fault. Mm -hmm. And, you know, did I ask for this paralysis? Obviously not. Did I want it? No. Do I still? No. Mm -hmm. But it happened. And whether this happens to you or it happens for you, or, you know, people get cancer, you fall Mm. off a horse, you get hit by a car, you get raped. All of these adversities happen to people all the time, right? And it's not your fault that this happened to you, but what you do to move forward from that is 100% Mm. your fault, your responsibility. Mm. You can either choose to play victim or you can choose to play hero in your own life. Mm. Right. And we see that time and time again. We have two people with the same adversity. One person chooses the positive route, one person chooses the negative route, and you see how their lives end up. Mm. It makes me think of um, what Laura McCowan says about this alcohol thing. It's not your fault, but it is your responsibility. Yeah. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Because it's, you know, what you do moving forward is up to you. Right. And like, it's a hard thing for people to understand and for people to hear. And I've had people tell me like, that's a really mean thing for you to say to me. Mm. Sure. Sure. You can think of it as mean, (laughs) but is it, or is it honest? Mm. Right. And how you perceive what I'm saying is you, Mm. that's a you problem, Mm -hmm. not a me problem. Mm -hmm. And like a few years ago, so every year I don't do new year's resolutions. I do uh, statements. Mm. Right. So a few years ago, my New Year's statement was respond, don't react. Hmm. Right. So if anything happened to me, if somebody said something to me, it's my responsibility to respond, not react. Hmm. Right. And I, I think that that goes, that goes for everything too. Any, any situation that we encounter, not just people. Yeah, exactly. Right. Because you can't control it. You can't control what's going to happen. You can't control how, what someone's going to say to you, how they're going to say it to you. You can't control that. The Mm. only thing you can control is how you respond or react to it. Mm -hmm. When you react, it's, I mean, that's usually a snap reaction. It's usually volatile um, and usually of the lower emotions. Mm. But if you take a minute, take a breath and respond, right? It has a different air about it. When you say, okay, you know, that's how you feel. You're, you are entitled to how, how you feel and I can't change that, but I'm not going to let it affect me. Mm-hmm. And I'm still going to stand by my statement of what I said to you. Hmm. That's so good. I mean, I feel like I, I really like this idea of agency, especially within the context of alcohol. And I don't know, I, I'll have to see what you think about this. I also do not come from the 12 steps or AA. It was not really ever part of my own recovery or how I got sober because for me, it was a non-starter. The idea of being an alcoholic kept me drinking longer than I should have because I just didn't know that I could just be a person who doesn't drink and not call myself anything. But one of the things that was challenging for me in this current conceptualization of the way that we think about recovery not drinking alcohol use disorder was the the idea of being powerless over alcohol. And I know that that can be interpreted many different ways and that can be a useful term for people and that can be a useful idea. But for me, it always felt like I was losing my sense of agency. It always felt like it was something that was taking away my ownership of this. And, and again, I, I caveat this, I asterisk this with everybody's experience is, is unique, but the women I work with now, I, I work in coaching with women who are trying to quit drinking. It's this idea of like, you have so much agency here. You have so much ability to change here. 
but you also have the ownership of that. I can't, I can't make you do the work. I can't, I can give you the information, but I can't make you integrate it. I can tell you the theory, but if you don't use the theory, that's as far as we can go. And I think that, like you said, it's kind of a hard pill to swallow. It's hard to say like, oh, I am the one who's responsible for for this. But I also think it's really powerful. I think it can be really empowering when so many of us feel like we don't have agency or we don't feel like we have power to be able to say, oh, actually, it's it's in my hands. This is something that I can change. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head there, right? It is really hard. Mm-hmm. It's definitely very, very hard. Mm-hmm. And this is a conversation I have with a lot of people who don't want to take responsibility, right? And you know, they the response back is usually, well, it's too hard. I can't do it. Mm-hmm. And my response is always like, all right, think of it like this, all right? Being fat and sick is hard. Being fit and healthy is hard. Mm-hmm. Being broke and poor is hard. Being filthy rich is hard. What are you going to choose? Which hard do you want to mm. choose? Because it's up to you. I have Nothing to n- is easy. Yeah. I also talk to people who say like, well, it would just be easier just to drink. And I'm like, it's, it, it can't be that easy if you're here. If you're, if you're thinking about it, it's not the easier option. It's, they're both hard. No. But which mm-hmm. one do you choose? Which hard do you choose? Exactly. Like, do you, have you seen liver cirrhosis? Have you seen it from an alcoholic? Uh, yeah, it. the images, yeah, yeah. Right? Like, do you think that's easy? Because hmm. that's what it leads to. Yeah. Right? <clears throat> and oftentimes I'll talk to people about, YouTube a video of what alcohol does at a cellular level. Mm. YouTube it. It's out there. You can see what alcohol does to your cells on a cellular level. Because too often we think of our head and our body being two different things. Mm-hmm. And so many people don't understand the biology of our bodies. Our bodies are actually really smart and mm. very, very complex. But people just think like, oh, it's just my body. Food comes in, something happens, poop comes out, <laughs> right? Like people don't know how their bodies work and they don't really realize that they're actually just millions of trillions of cells. Mm. And when you look at the video of how the toxin of alcohol affects your cells, and your cells are different for each part of your body, your organs and everything, right? But when you look at it at a cellular level and you see the damage you're doing mm. to each cell, to me, that's what really woke me up, mm-hmm. right? I'm a very visual person. Um, I really enjoyed science and biology. So <laughs> I like, you know, being an x-ray tech, I know how your body works, mm-hmm. right? But so many people don't. So this is the conversation I have with them is like, look at it. Mm. And if doctors knew this, why are doctors saying that it's okay to drink? It's okay to have a couple of glasses of wine. It's okay to have a scotch. It's okay to have this. It's okay to have that. Is it? Yeah. It's really interesting. I just had a video go like pretty viral on TikTok, which uh, totally different conversation. Zero out of 10, do not recommend because the internet is a lot. But the video was about alcohol being classified as a class one carcinogen which means it is known to cause cancer. And man, people really don't like hearing that. People really don't want to hear the tangible impact of alcohol on our physical bodies. And it's really interesting to see how just people will justify it. So the comment section, of course, comment section anywhere is a hot mess, but this this is a dumpster fire of a comment section. It's got about 1200 comments at this point. But so many of the comments are like, yeah, but it's good for your heart. Or I saw this one study that says, you know, X, Y, Z is fine. And, and and there's so many arguments in the comments or like a lot of people saying like, I'm here for a, a good time, not for a long time, which is also very nihilistic. But mm-hmm. it's really interesting to watch people in real time justifying their continued use. And that's fine. Like if you, if you are fully informed you understand completely what you are consuming and then you still choose to move forward. Again, agency, that is your ownership. But the the mental gym- gymnastics that we will still play to justify something, even when we have more concrete data about how it's impacting our bodies is, is very interesting. I, again, wouldn't recommend going viral on TikTok. Um, it's not <laughs> as cracked up as they say it is, but, but it's really, really fascinating to see, you know, more on a tangible level, what is, what is happening yeah. here and this idea that it's a neurotoxin talking about your, your nervous system, like alcohol is toxic to our nervous system. And I mean, I could, I could geek out about that stuff forever, but I want to know, 
as we are wrapping up kind of the end of our conversation, one of the things that I wrote down from the beginning of your story is how you were gaining the courage and the bravery to speak your truth. And the ripple effect that that has is really powerful in how important it is to see people in our lives who look like like us, who have similar experiences, who have Mm -hmm. physical attributes that look like us, who have identities that are similar to ours. And and really that's kind of what we're doing here at Sober Stories is really Mm -hmm. speaking different iterations of this kind of path that we're all on of, of changing our relationship with alcohol. And I think that that's really important. So what stories do you want to be known for? What stories or what truths that you speak are really impactful for you? Wow, good question. <laughs> um, I think the biggest one would be that I'm not a victim. Mm-hmm. I don't ever want to be considered a victim. I don't want myself to consider myself a victim. That I do want to take ownership for everything that I do, positive or negative. It is always my fault. Everything that has happened is my fault. I am where I am in my life because of me, right? And so that works in both positive and negative. I think like it's hard, like the hard part of that is is the positive side of things, right? It's easy to play victim. It's easy to say, you know, this happened to me, blah, blah, blah. But what's difficult for a lot of people nowadays is to say, no, like I am brave. Mm. I am courageous. I am (laughs) strong. I am all these things. Even as I'm saying it now, and even though I fully believe it, a part of me is like, oh, like, should you be saying that? (laughs) Yes, you should. Do you sound sound conceited? Mm -mm. Right? Because I think that's how we're programmed. We're programmed to constantly talk negatively about ourselves, about each other. Right? But, uh, you know, would you ever say that about your friend? Right. No right? The words we use in our head play a huge part in how we present ourselves and how we talk to others. Mm -hmm. So having that ownership and being proud of who you are, I think is something that I will always continue to work on, but I am proud of that, that I am am able to say, I'm not that person you think I am. Mm -hmm. I'm smart. I'm strong. I'm courageous. I'm brave. I'm all these things and I'm unapologetic about it. Mm -hmm. Yes. Unapologetic. I love that. I I also try to live unapologetically, and sometimes it gets me crazy comments on TikTok. But here we are. (laughs) The last question I always ask in every interview is: If your story were to be written into a book, what would it be titled, and what kind of story would it be? (laughs) Good question. Again, (laughs) Um, I think it would be called "Welcome to the Jungle," (laughs) and. There's a couple of plays on that. So my full name, Ben Veet, means woman of the jungle. Okay. And so having that name growing up, uh, I think I've kind of grew into that name and I've always been a little bit wild, <laughs> always been very different. And I embrace that now. And, you know, another part of Welcome to the Jungle is my life is freaking crazy. <laughs> I've only told you like 2% of what has actually happened in my life. You just like, need to start honestly, a full podcast of, of the bean life. <laughs> oh my God, it would be too long. <laughs> but I like, I, I, you know, sometimes I think like, you know, like now I realize that I have more adversity than the average human being. I understand that. But sometimes I'm like, what does it feel like to just live a normal life? Like, what does it feel like? I wonder what it feels like for these people. Right, because I'm like, oh, like, and yeah. I try not to invite it. I try not to invite more adversity to my life. But when it comes, like, I'm definitely way better equipped now to deal with any adversity that does come into mm-hmm. my life. But sometimes I'm just like, can I just like have a little break? I'm just <laughs> gonna like, go take a little nap, and then the adventure, yeah. the jungle, can like begin again. But I just want to nap for a minute. Yeah, like <laughs> just like pause. <laughs> it's too much sometimes. <laughs> but I also recognize that this is my life. This is the life I chose when I became a human being in this hmm. form. So here we are. Deal with it. For better or for worse, <laughs> here, here we are. are. 
Well, it has been so wonderful to talk to you. And I feel like there's so many good nuggets that we didn't even get to touch on because there's just a lot of richness in the story that you shared with us. So thank you so much for your story. I know our community will want to connect with you. How can they find you? What do you have going on in your world? Where can we connect with you? Sure. So first of all, thank you very much for having me. When I got your email to be a guest, I was very, very happy because this is something important to share. Mm -hmm. And I can't wait to share the episode when it does uh, Mm -hmm. release um, because I think it's going to give other South Asian people permission to call themselves alcoholics and to then share their stories, Mm. which will have a ripple effect in our community. I hope. Yes. Um, to contact me, you can contact me via Instagram, which is at Branzoid, B-R-A-N-Z-O-I-D. My business website is www.reu.ca, R-E-Y-U.ca. So you can contact me through there. My email address is bean at reu.ca. Email me if you'd like. Yeah, we have a lot of things going on. Um, lots of New projects happening, lots of big things happening. I signed with a public speaking agent, so I'll be doing Amazing. a lot more public speaking. Yeah, traveling around to the States, so maybe I'll get to meet you in real life one cool. day. Yeah, if you make it down to Texas, let me know. <laughs> oh, that's where she's located, so there's a good chance there I'll be go. in Texas. <laughs> yeah, lots of things happening. I try not to turn down any opportunity because we only live once. Drake said it, right? <laughs> so we have to embrace it. If Drake <laughs> said it, we got to listen. We have to listen. Yes. (laughs) And I mean, if we let all the little things stop us, you're just missing out on so much that could be. Right. Mm -hmm. So forget about the little things. Forget about what they think of you. Take responsibility for who you are and go live your life, man. Heck yeah. I think that is exactly the right way to do it. All right, Bean. Well, thank you so much for your time. I hope you have a beautiful day. Thanks, Beth. You too. See what I mean about Powerhouse? Bean has overcome so many obstacles and does so without sugarcoating how challenging they can be. I'm glad to know we're now. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to us if you took a second to rate and review Sober Stories wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us tell more stories, reach more people, change more lives, one good review at a time. And if you had a big aha moment from today's show, we'd love it if you shared it with us on social media. You can find us at We Are Sober Stories on most platforms. Tag us so we can hear your big takeaways and you never know when we'll send a little thank you. I also want to thank our team here at Sober Stories, Alexis Archuleta on the mixing and podcast genius side, Callie Williams is our community engagement lead, Daniela Marty for our graphic design, and every single person who has a hand in what we are building. Until next week, my friends. <laughs>